You can take Salem out of the country, but you can't take the country out of Salem. You can take Salem out of the country, but you can't take the country out of Salem. This week's Travelcast Theater on the Air, brought to you by Salem Cigarettes, the official cigarette of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. You can take Salem out of the country, but you can't take the country out of Salem. A merry American Christmas, that's what we're wishing you. My, but it's just great, we can celebrate underneath the sky of blue. Live from Tuba American City, Texas, Christmas, it's the Travelcast Theater on the Air, episode 143. Norm Sherman, producer. In the land of liberty. In every Good evening, this is Norman Sherman. Well, friends, it's Christmas Eve. The one time of the year when being nice finally pays off. Remember, girls and boys, if you hear old Saint Nick tiptoeing around downstairs tonight delivering your sack full of presents, don't get out of bed. Just sleep tight and wait for morning with dreams of sugar plums dancing in your head. Because while chances are that it is Santa Claus, there is a small chance that it's a serial rapist. It could always be a serial rapist. Never forget that. Well, I don't mean to bring down the Christmas mood. Why don't you get a warm mug of apple cider and snuggle up in your comfiest pajamas in front of the fire while we check in on Drabblecast cryptozoologist Connor Chodesworth with the concluding chapter to our nature documentary miniseries, In Search of the Mongolian Death Worm. In Search of the Mongolian Death Worm with Connor Chodesworth. We've traversed the hills and stony waste of Mongolia by camel, sailed the furious salty waves of Lake Sarsan by schooner, and crossed over the treacherous Altai Mountains into the bleak Kazakhstani plains. We're following an immense, brightly shining star in the western sky, which we believe to be a sign leading us to the legendary Mongolian deathworm. The deathworm the object of our research is a giant mythical beast which allegedly leaps from the sand, spits acid, and fires electricity from its ass. We've already burned through this year's government grant money, all $3.8 million of it, and so far we've been unable to gather any conclusive data on the worm. My companions include a loquacious local numbskull named Nambaran and Bono, a rock star who's recently transformed into the god emperor of Mongolia and who's also getting increasingly cocky about it. Bono, look, okay, I'm sorry, but there's no way that was stopping for your stupid made-up holiday. Ugh. Bono claims that today marks the beginning of an eight-day religious festival in his honor and he's upset at having to miss his own party. He calls it Bonoka. Oh, God. Also, he and Nambaran have been playing the game either or the entire time, and I swear to God, I'm about to lose my mind. Nambaran is asking Bono if he had to either eat an eight-inch human turd or cut off one of his nipples with those tiny little dull scissors with orange plastic handles that you get in kindergarten, which would he do? Either or. 
He says, if you puke while eating the turd, you still have to eat it. Oh, God, Nambaran, seriously, that's disgusting. Bono, don't answer that. Just don't, okay? I'm so sick of that game. Look, can't we just focus here? We've almost reached Betelaglod. Betelaglod. It's Kazakhstani for village of the complacent yak. That seems to be where the Deathworm stars leading us. We enter the village gates. The village appears to be empty, mostly dark, aside from a few lit up torches lining a dusty street caked with dried mud and donkey dookie. Hello? Is anyone here? We don't mean any harm. We just want to see the Deathworm. Silence. Hello? Anyone? Bono tugs at my sleeve and points at a small ramshackle hut at the end of the shoddy mud road. Its wooden doors hang open. It appears to be some sort of stable. What is it, Bono? That's just a manger. Who gives a crap? His face is expressionless, his big sunglasses utterly douchey. Oh, that's right. I forgot. You're supposed to be the one who can be many places at once. And your prophetic powers allow you to see all paths with your inner eye. Uh, look, Bono, about that, I've been meaning to talk to you. Now, this isn't going to be easy to hear, but... Wait, where are you going? Come back here. Uh, Nambaran, you too? Wait a second. Wait up, guys. We enter the low-lit stable. Urine-scented straw covers most of the dirt floor. The place is largely empty, inhabited only by a few sleeping goats and a complacent, droopy-eyed yak. See, I told you, there's nothing here. We need to be out in the open looking for wormholes, not in here lollygagging around with... Bono points to a small trough in the back, lit by candlelight. It looks as if there's something in it. Something swaddled up in cloth, worming around in the wooden bin. It's thick and appears to be cylindrical in shape, at least the part covered and wrapped up, protruding from the trough. Dear God, what is it? Bono, is that a death worm in there? It's smaller than I pictured. Uh, no, it, it can't be. A warm halo of light seems to be radiating outward from the blunt, squirming mound. I lower my acid-deflecting visor and slowly approach the creature. This could be it, folks. This could be it. With each breath, the creature's thick body gently heaves underneath the cloth. It's emanating a strange sound, low and breathy, as if simultaneously gurgling and purring. I brace myself, teeth clenched. I begin to pull back the cloth, beads of sweat gathering on my forehead. I pull the cloth aside. What the? Is that a... Son of a bitch. It's a fucking Lorax. I speak for the trees. Oh no, it's a trap. We've been set up. Nambaran squeals like an ugly, hirsute, Mongolian schoolgirl. I feel the butt of a rifle against my skull. And then nothing more. I awake with my face pressed against cold concrete, the dull mechanical sounds of working machinery all around me. The thick scent of smog and hot, dirty oil fill the air. I hear men speaking Kazakhstani. 
Is that was an easier than taking candy and taking a baby? Oh, my head is throbbing, like waking up after a wild night of dancing and drinking strawberry peach cosmos. We appear to be in some giant factory with a massive dirty glass dome above our heads. All around us, dejected, exhausted-looking Lorax slaves toil at grimy machinery, making what looks to be some sort of strange, thready fabric. The men standing around us are dressed in military garb, aside from one, the one that appears to be their leader. He's dressed in a billowing pink sundress. His hairy legs and feet protrude from the bottom. Yea, greetings, good emperor, and a happy Bonoka to you. The man says, bowing his head. Oh, please, how did you even know about that? Yes, I see that you are noticing my sneed. It is a, a beautiful, is it not? Bono looks up, evidently quite taken by the sundress. He nods up and down slowly. What is this? Where have you taken us? Ah, quiet, you pallid, odd-accented newsman. This is no concern of yours. This is between me and the God Emperor, the one with the inner eye, the one they call the Kuitach Dushbagger. Okay, nobody calls him that. That's what he calls himself. <laughs> I'm kicked in the stomach by a nearby soldier. <laughs> yes, I am the Baron Vladimir von Wanzler, CEO of Freed Corps United. You might have heard of me. I won't talk business with you, God Emperor. As you know, the Thneed is mighty Kazakhstan's chief commercial export. The blood in my kingdom's veins, keeping House Wanzler in its seat of power. Wait, 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 I'm, I'm sorry. What? What the hell is a Thneed? <laughs> a Thneed? Why, my pasty little prisoner, a Thneed's a fine something that all people need. You can use it for carpets, for pillows or sheets, or curtains or covers for bicycle seats. It's shirt, it's sock, it's glove, it's a hat, but it has other uses, yes, far beyond that. Ah, like a pretty rose-colored sundress. Absolutely. Why not the sock? What am I going to do with just one sock? Ah, okay, that's a good point. Uh, so why not just a hat then? Silence, infidel. Good emperor, as I'm sure you are aware, Thneeds are made from felled Truffola trees, and for this reason, Truffola has become most essential and valuable commodity in the entire universe. My machines chug on day and night without stop, making gloppity glop and shloppity shlop. We've killed the brown barbalutes with smogulous smoke, and our last truffle tree has withered and choked. And now the nation of Mongolia is only a place in universe where truffle can be found. Without the truffle, there is no commerce in empire, there is no civilization, and he who controls it controls our destiny.
Mr. Baron von Wunsler, you are crazy with greed. There is no one on earth who would buy that fourth need. Yeah, it's the start of an industry, you poor stupid guy. Are you telling me what the public will buy? Hey, now, God Emperor Bono, shall we strike a deal? Or must I be made now to murder and steal? Let me harvest your truffle. What do you say? Simply keep your great legions of holy warriors at bay. Ugh, he doesn't have holy warriors. You've made a mistake. The worm that he mated was phony, a fake. And we could care less about truffle trees. Go ahead, chop them down just as fast as you please. I'm sorry, God Emperor, but you give me no choice. I'm sick of your silence and sick of his voice. Guards, the reporter, bring him up front. End pair of small scissors, orange-handled and blunt. You've got to be kidding me. Roughly, I'm dragged up onto my feet, the scissors unsheathed and installed at my teat. I'll give you two options. You must choose either or. Surely you've played this dumb game before? Either give up your truffle trees, I contend, or I'll clip off the nip of your imbecile friend. Yeah, now, let's not be hasty. Let's just all settle down. Uh, that nipple's no trivial vestigial mound. It maintains my bilateral dyadic symmetry. So for God's sakes, Bono, shut up and listen to me. Bono, I'm sorry, but it's true, I'm afraid. That worm underground and the love that you made were not what they seemed. You're living a lie. You're not a god emperor, prophetic messiah. That death worm was fake, I must sadly insist. Because the truth is that death worms don't really exist. Just then, a sound, a faraway humming. Bono leisurely smiled like he knew what was coming. It grew louder and louder like thundiburous thunder. No, it can't be! cried the Baron von Wunsler. The dome ceiling shattered, glass poured down like rain, and a terrible creature dropped its head like a crane. I couldn't believe it, the thing that I saw, which grabbed up the Baron in its magnificent maw. I screamed in terror, then whispered in awe, for he is the Kuitsatz Dushbaga. And as the beast vanished, a thunderbolt crashed, not down from the sky, but up from its ass. I've been away from civilization so long, I'm having trouble remembering how to tie a tie. Nambaran has to do it for me. It's supposed to be a half Windsor, but it looks more half-assed to me. Okay, okay, whatever, sorry. No, no, fine, I'll let you do it. We're about to go to our first formal debriefing report with the research review board back home. I'm a little nervous. These sciencey types like to ask a lot of questions. I'm worried they might think I'm silly. We left Mongolia and Kazakhstan in a relatively stable state. Now that the Thneed factory has been torn down, truffle trees have begun to take root, and brown barbaloots dance in their brown barbaloot suits. The swami swams sing and the humming fish hum, and we've declumped their ponds and their gills are ungummed. Bono and his elite army of desert holy warriors overthrew Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV, and now control most of Central and East Asia, along with a firm truffle monopoly that positions them for expedient world domination. Mongolian deathworms do exist, 
I saw one with my own two eyes, and so did Nambaran here. Ip, Ip, remember what we talked about? Let me do the talking, okay? You're far too prolix and effervescent. They'll never take you seriously. I straighten my thneed tie and enter the conference room. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and happy Bonica to you all. Yes, Virginia, there is a Mongolian death worm. Well, I'm glad Connor finally made it back home, and just in time for the holidays. Well, friends, the following portion of our program is brought to you by the good folks at Pepsodent. Billy Brown, the smoothest, coolest guy in town. The chicks all seem to dig his jive. Hey, tell us, Bill, how can we arrive? It's easy, Jack. Any gal gets sent. When you flash a smile by Pepsodent, you'll wonder where the yellow went when you brush your teeth with Pepsodent. Pepsodent, the chicks will dig your jive. Well, friends... Last we heard, our Golden Age masked vigilante fire marshal was on the up, having established a massive spiderweb patchwork grid of fire escapes throughout the city, staying one step ahead of mercenary paparazzi photographer and blossoming love interest Rita Rayleigh. But it's not all pennies and root beer for our hero, folks. The mayor is MIA. Dangerous lacrosse teams rampage throughout the city's fire escapes. Powerful, disgruntled real estate executives await any opportunity to strike the marshal when he's down. And the news media is obsessed with uncovering the man under the mask. Folks, we bring you part two of John Agard's The Golden Age of Fire Escapes. The mayor still had not returned. His last shortwave had been garbled. He was either in Malabar or Madagascar. The city dispatched expeditions to both places, all the while knowing they would never retrieve him in time for the looming Santa Claus parade. Without the mayor, the city needed a new Santa. According to the charter, the fire marshal was next in line of Santa's succession. He tried to refuse, but City Hall did not want to fill the position with the deputy mayor, who was third on the Santa list. City Hall dangled ever larger budget increases in front of the fire marshal, until at last he agreed in a compromise that would have him ride behind Santa's sleigh in a gleaming twin-boiler 1899 Corman coal-fired emergency coach, the pride of the historical garage. The crowd was lined up six deep along the parade route. They ignored the deputy mayor, who sat lightly sedated between his doctor and the nurse in the Santa sleigh. Instead, they chanted endlessly for the marshal, who would not leave the stifling warmth of his coach or even roll down a window to wave. Finally, near Fitzpatrick Square, where the parade was to terminate, he did step out to the running boards and wave to acknowledge the crowd. Their applause echoed off the surrounding skyscrapers. Take off your mask, they cried. He shook his head, and then, amid a lightning storm of camera flashes, he ducked back inside and told Guy Featherstone to step on it. 
With one hand cranking hard on the hand siren, Featherstone veered the emergency coach off the parade route through the crowd. The people scattered and then reformed behind him, following him all the way back to the public safety building. Their faces shone in the icy fog, chuffed out by the emergency coach, and in some cases, with tears. The fire marshal was unmoved by this devotion. He told Guy Featherstone to take the parking ramp directly into Public Safety's basement garage, which was protected by cops and forbidden to the general public. The crowd milled around outside until dark in the hopes of a balcony appearance, but he didn't gratify that either. The national magazines were spreading the word about the masked marshal and his firescape phenomenon. Kansas City and Honolulu and Montreal and several other burgeoning cities invited the marshal to consult for them, sometimes offering fat honorariums. He always refused. He would never leave his city, he said. Not for a weekend, not even for a minute. Architects seize public safety office. Loudly proclaim that city fire escapes are as ugly as steel tumbleweeds are driven ungently off by water cannons. The next time that Rita came by, she walked in through the front door in broad daylight. He's expecting me, she said as she walked past the receptionist and into his apartment. Hello? She called. Hello, Rita. He was in the bathroom again. There was a steaming pot on the stove. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you. She put her sequined handbag on the little kitchenette table. Well, that's a flashy bag, he said from behind her. It was, really. The sequins were tiny lenses. When their linked shutters flickered open, they would all flash micro-images onto a gyro-stabilized ellipsoid of photosensitive material suspended within. She could shoot from anywhere and one of the angles would be good. She'd been inspired by a National Geographic article on dragonflies. Made it myself, she said, and she forced herself to turn around very slowly. His mask was in his hands. He was clear-eyed, indifferently shaved, in his late thirties somewhere, shorter than she remembered, dimpled and a little pasty, probably didn't get a lot of sun. Really, she thought, it was only the mask that had made him remarkable. You are dressed for work, he said. Always on duty. He sniffed. No perfume. No dogs. But a mask? I mean, after last time. She took it off. That's better. He gazed into her eyes. Want some navy beans? She let him serve her. I've been hoping you'd come back, he said. I've been doing a lot of thinking. Uh-huh. I think you should come work for me. Hmm. She rested her hand on her handbag. How are the beans? Guy normally cooks, so this is an experiment. I put a little Worcestershire sauce in it. The beans are fine. We'd be a great team. I can straighten out all that trouble you're in. I don't care what the chief of police says, or the mayor for that matter. And I bet you and Guy would get along great. I see. She said as she tapped her bag. All the shutters snapping at once made a sound like a rattlesnake sneeze. Rita covered it with her own cough. <coughs> the fire marshal didn't notice. I can do whatever I want in this town, he was saying. Can I use your bathroom? Uh, sure, right through there. 
She got up, taking her bag. Need my purse. She winked. Girl stuff. There was a little window in the bathroom. Outside of it was a convenient fire escape. The fire marshal unmasked. Editorial betting was on mustard gas disfigurement, not dimpled schnook. Also inside, feisty gal photographer deliberately vague on future plans. The fire marshal didn't venture outside his apartment for nearly three weeks after that, until the next all-city meeting. The meeting commenced with good news from the tropical island of Matahaybar, where the mayor had reconciled Leninist rebels with their French colonial masters, ending the island's bloody civil war. He was now consulting on a new constitution, and fully expected to be home within the week. Um, if I may interject before we continue, said the nurse who sat at the deputy mayor's left hand. It's not really good for his honor to see face coverings. She was looking straight at the fire marshal. Yes, it undermines some of the trust axioms we've been developing, said the doctor on the deputy mayor's right. The fire marshal sighed, took off his mask, and sat silently throughout the rest of the meeting, letting Guy Featherstone read the fire department's quarterly report. Afterwards, at the reception, he walked around like a lost dog, twirling the mask in his fingers. No one talked to him. He left early, before the drinking started in earnest. He put his mask back on and went up into the fire escapes, into the dark of his old kingdom, and he wandered. Sometime around midnight, he found himself next to a long desk piled with paper tubes. A pneumatic messaging outfit had sprang up in parallel to the fire escapes. This was a routing desk. Underneath the desk, in a circle of streetlight, he saw a crushed cigarette butt. A cigarette butt! He decided to write a note to the pneumatic crew, to tell them to smoke outside or he'd throw them in jail. He snapped the overhead electric light on to look for a pencil, and what he saw horrified him. Drifts of little message papers floated around the draft. Bales of their unused cousins were piled in the corner. Open cans of pneumatic tube grease lay everywhere. A spark here and the whole place would go up. It wouldn't starve for air, not the way the wind was whistling through these long fire escape corridors. He headed for home, mentally composing the citations he was going to issue, and a few steps later he found himself in the vicinity of the Hata Labor Steakhouse. Their escape had been updated since he'd last inspected it. Now it was richly appointed with Swedish pine and thick red funeral home carpeting. Aghast, he staggered onward, discovering that everyone had embellished their escapes. The expo center had lined theirs high with surplus chairs. The Japanese Friendship Society had added a garden of tiny trees and a storage locker of explosive fertilizer. The Imperial Bank had painted their curly cues with cheap Hungarian paint that would become dripping liquid fire at temperatures insufficient to boil water. Now, thanks to this interwoven escape network, a fire anywhere could take the whole city with it. He descended to street level and grabbed a cab back to public safety. He had work to do. He started that night. By executive order, he banned the pneumatic tube operations from the fire escapes. He put Guy Featherstone, who was looking very fit, having been restored to his proper sleeping area, to work printing and posting no smoking signs. People laughed. What were the crazy signs going to say next? No breathing? 
Next, he bought three truckloads of canned synthetic fire retardant and set to work spraying the entire escape network. It would have been an inspired idea, except that the city had hit a February cold snap and the spray retardant worked poorly in the cold. It dripped through the escapes, melted the snow, mixed with the water, and finally hardened. Soon, great plastic stalactites hung from every escape. The fire brigade had to knock them off with their ladder trucks before they fell and killed someone. Night after night, the fire marshal lived in sheer insomniac terror, waiting for some crazy fool to burn his fire escapes and his city down. Every night, smelling phantom smoke, he would jump out of his bed, don his mask, and run out into the escapes. Finding nothing, he would patrol with his nose filters open, sniffing for smoke. Finally, he could take it no more, and he ordered the city evacuated for a day, except for him and Guy Featherstone and a few of the lacrosse players that he deputized. Anyone who carped was arrested. Protesting cables were sent to the mayor, but he was testing a peroxide-powered submarine for the Navy and could not be reached. On the appointed day, with the city empty, the fire marshal and his deputies walked the entire network of fire escape, all 22 miles of it. Wherever an escape met a building, they placed shaped charges, ones that would cut as neatly as craft knives. When the sun went down, they returned to the public safety building. A big plunger had been set on top of the marshal's desk. You do it, the marshal said. He did. Gunshot cracks echoed all over the city and the fire marshal's empire. The entire thing, from the top of Clark Tower to home plate at Holden Field, came down in a dusty heap. Folks, I'm going down to St. James Infirmary. They took the deputy mayor to the public safety building. Tell him exactly what you feel, said the deputy mayor's doctor. And with, and therefore I am relieving you of your duties, said the nurse. And be sure he signs the papers. They pushed him through the fire marshal's door. The office was empty. The apartment was spotless. It looked like no one had ever lived there. You're fired, said the deputy mayor. Ex-fire marshal dead in New Orleans body house. Killing by doorman justified, says the city's chief prosecutor. New report. Ex-fire marshal not killed by doorman. Instead, demise was gin-soaked. Surprisingly commonplace. This just in. Tropical disease spells ex-fire marshal in Cuba. Rare affliction cannot be communicated except by cannibalism. After that, despite the City Lantern's best efforts, there were still legends that he was still operating a rogue company of adventurer firemen in the city slums, that he'd changed careers and become the weird Prince of Auto Body Repair who would steal people's cars in order to fix their dents and their windshields, that he'd accepted a secret post with the Federal Office of Strategic Advantage and toiled there alongside the mayor. None of the insiders ever shed any light on his mystery. 
Guy Featherstone enlisted and died in the army without ever betraying any of his confidences. The mayor's autobiography didn't even mention him. It mostly documented the mayor's run as a Rocket Records hitmaker in the 1950s. Rita Rayleigh, in her own memoir, gave him his only entry in posterity. The fire marshal was a very nice man, if a little overbearing, she wrote. Scale models of his escapes were entered into science fairs. Occasional downtown revitalization projects proposed their restoration, but never seriously. The one corner of the escape network that had escaped destruction became a small museum full of artifacts, including the plans for the original Wilson Clark escape and the penny that was paid for them. They did not display the City Lantern's famous Fire Marshal Unmasked front page. But eventually, after burning for decades, the Fire Marshal's legend faded. Only a very few tended to it, amateurs and archivists and librarians who pined after their city's black and white past for the time when their betters really were better. And then came the web and Google and one-click snooping. With a credit card number and three minutes typing, one enterprising historian discovered that a childless bachelor had filed tax papers from Guy Featherstone's garage for each of the four years following the fire marshal's dismissal. And better yet, someone with the exact same name now lived in a high-rise elder care on the city's outskirts. She traced his address back through history and found that, just as he had sworn, he had never left the city. The historian and her confederates alerted the elder care staff and conspired on a tribute, an unannounced fire drill. White-shirted orderlies clipped a particle mask over the old fire marshal's face to protect him from smoke, they told him, and they took him up in their large, soft hands. One foot in front of the other, boys. That's all it takes, he said to them as they smoothly carried him downstairs. Outside, they saw him on the grass. He beamed as the entire population of the elder care was quickly and smoothly evacuated from all 20 floors and assembled on the front lawn. I couldn't have done it any better in my day, he said to the crowd that gathered around him. Not even with a spring-heeled girl and good old guy to help me. We're all right. We're all gonna be all right. Deceased city elder care resident was enigmatic civil servant, laid to rest in mask. Maverick's death recalls dashing days of glorious authoritarianism. The following portion of our program is brought to you by Cresta Blanca. C-R-E-S-T-A. B-L-A-N-C-A. Cresta Blanca. Cresta Blanca. Cresta Blanca. What the hell is it? 
Friends, the fundamental truth of a secret identity is that we are more than what we appear on the surface, that there's more to us than meets the eye. In some cases, that something might be superhuman strength or telepathic powers. In other cases, it might just be the honest desire to keep one's motives completely pure. Once anonymous, they are no longer dependent upon the applause of others to remain true to their heroic convictions. They want their deeds to stand alone, to not do them for recognition or thanks, but because they are the right thing to do. Masked heroes fascinate us because deep down we all desire to live heroic lives of self-giving for the good of others. But unfortunately, folks, that's friggin' hard as crap and not very fun at all. It's far easier to just pull off the hero's mask, pulling them down to our level rather than aspiring up to theirs. The mask comes off and it's just Michael Phelps or Tiger Woods sitting there like, What's up? You want some navy beans? Either that, or you're blasted away because it's a hero that shoots laser beams from his eyes, and he needed that ruby quartz lens in the mask to keep his powers in check. Friends, the new year's coming up. If you don't feel like reinventing yourself into a hero in 2010, the least you can do is try to be less of a dick to other people. So, that's our show. If you enjoyed this program, you can do your part to make sure that you not only get it every week, but that it keeps getting better and better. You can go to Drabblecast.org and donate. You can donate $2. You can donate $2,000. Whatever you want. It all helps. Or you can subscribe for $5 a month, and we'll give you a big high five for being just that awesome. Our show is produced under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change it or sell it, but share it freely all you like. Write us a review on iTunes, Podcast Alley, Roadside Bathroom Stall, wherever you feel like exciting other people. Special thanks to Skeet Science Ski for last week's cover art. Skeet is the awesome talent behind Beyond the Disc, custom art illustrations for any occasion. Find that in our show notes and contact Skeet through skeetland at gmail.com or visit his webpage at www.skeetland-art.com. This week's episode art was done by Bo Kyer of Super Animal Megabeast Notoriety. He's a kick-ass artist, but then you already knew that, didn't you? If he forgot his site, it's bokaier.com. That's B-O-K-A-I-E-R dot com. And if you like playing either or as much as Bono and Nambaran do, you may want to go to megabeast.com right now and vote for which badass super animal would win in a fight to the death. We're in the finals, folks. It's getting heated. So, have a happy holiday, people. We'll see you next week. Until then, our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you... Not to forget your purse. Girl stuff.